Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Hi, welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast history of the devil. I'm Klaus Yoder. I'm here doing a bonus culture desk edition of Seven Heads, Ten Horns because I just finished watching HBO's Station Eleven. Station Eleven, based off of a 2014 novel by Emily Sinjin Mandel. The HBO version coming out, produced by Patrick Somerville, starring a ton of people like... Mackenzie Davis, Matilda Lawler, Himesh Patel, David Wilmet, Nabhan Rizwan, Daniel Zavato, Lori Perry, Danielle Deadweiler. And she's an interesting character. This, the whole story is named Station Eleven. It's named after a graphic novel that plays a huge role in the plot and the character development of this show. The show, if you know nothing about it, is very, very post-2020. It's about the aftermath of a, what's called the Georgia flu, a swine flu that wipes out, I believe it's supposed to be like 95% of the human population. So yeah, a little close to the bone. The story focuses on the character Kirsten, and we get her story first as an eight-year-old who through sort of random circumstances ends up with two responsible adults and is able to survive a lot of the pandemic because the one adult Jeevan is in touch with his sister who's like an ER doctor and is witnessing this this pandemic hitting in Chicago and is like you need to go barricade yourself in our brother's house and so he runs into this eight-year-old who is acting in a version of King Lear and the star who's playing King Lear Arthur dies on stage and in the confusion that's like the death of the main lead and also this this devastating swine flu hitting Chicago, Jeevan ends up taking Kirsten in and keeping her safe. So the story is her relationship with that character, and then they're separated by sort of... The, the plot of this thing is actually so convoluted, it's, it's sort of impossible for me to really give a, a summation that wouldn't just like make you want to hit stop right away, if I haven't already. It's told in a non-linear way, so you don't get from point A to point C in a, in a linear fashion. So that's important. It's 10 episodes long. But anyway, we sort of toggle back and forth between 8-year-old Kirsten's perspective and then 28-year-old Kirsten's perspective and how she has managed to survive after being separated from Jeevan. She survives by joining up with this troupe of musicians and theater people, actors, directors set builders, etc., called the Traveling Symphony. And in the aftermath of the great pandemic, the Traveling Symphony does a one-year rotation of the Great Lakes region. They call it this the wheel. And for a year, they rotate around the wheel and perform for the communities, these sort of you know makeshift communities that have sprung up of the, the bare remnant of survivors. 
And so the traveling symphony has kind of a conservative repertoire, which I think is, is, is telling. They do Shakespeare. They do, you know, interesting variations and reinterpretations of it. And they're writing new music. But there is a kind of holding on to the classics as a way of preserving identity. And to me, this is what why this this a discussion of this this mini series belongs on this podcast because there's a lot of overlap with religion themes. And so one of the main themes that we get with the traveling symphony is this conservative canonized theater thing they're doing. Um, they're doing Shakespeare. And uh, Hamlet is the play that they're sort of working off of, and it sort of provides a lot of motifs along the way across the, the, the series. I think what we get from this, and it creates a generational tension because the, the people who had lives and were adults or were children before the pandemic hit, I think use the performance of the classics as a way of holding on to what was in the past. Again, another major theme is, is how to conserve or, or what to conserve or why, to, why one conserves. And the why seems to be a lot in this show that old art, the canon, is a way of processing trauma and sort of you have almost this liturgical quality to the rotation and the sort of circumambulation of the Great Lakes region. It, it's been going on for 20 years and it is this ritualized performance that provide some stability and regularity in a world that has been like restored to what political philosophers of early modernity thought was the state of nature of, you know, life was nasty, brutish and short for, you know, in the words of Thomas Hobbes, like there's a lot of precarity, there's a lot of vulnerability. And these people are trying to hold on to some semblance of their souls through performance, through art. This causes some tension, as I mentioned, because the characters who were born after the pandemic grow up in this, who grow up in this, with a traveling symphony. And one of these characters is Alex in the, in the novel in the show. She's starting to question, like, why do I have to keep doing this? Why do we have to do the same circuit, the wheel? Why do we have to do the same plays? And there's like this kind of youth movement rebellious streak that's happening in the in in the in the series and one character who is is sort of seducing younger members of different communities to his own his own what and and this is i use this term advisedly i know i know that the term cult is is being canceled but his own sort of alternative religious community she's tempted by this and and kirsten is really insecure and desperate to avoid her younger protege from being snatched up and taken away by this rival community, this rival sort of messianic community that 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 has that that pops up. The other thing that's sort of, I think it's strangely almost a weakness of the series, and I'm not sure it's true of the novel because I haven't read it. Maybe I will someday. People, I've heard that the series is actually better than the novel. And and the, the novelist, Emily Sinjin Mondell, I don't know if she says St. John or Sinjin. Sinjin is really, really sounds Etonian to me, but she she was a producer on the show, so she she got to, maybe, she, you know, it's like sort of having a do-over. 
or a chance to reimagine. That must be pretty cool. Anyway, there is this kind of Wes Anderson vibe to the whole thing. These people are putting on plays. There's this like sort of fanatical commitment to the plays and to like these ultra aestheticized renditions of these plays. There's this kind of way in, and the other way it's like Wes Anderson is that there are a lot of conflicts and a lot of, there's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of hurt. And like I think in most Wes Anderson movies, through a combination of of revelation, but also through like these filtering mediums of culture and performance, almost all of these tensions are able to be resolved. People are able to be reunited who have been like separated or deeply hurt by one another. And there's a kind of there's a humanism to that. There's a there's there's an optimism to it. There, it sometimes comes across as a little bit too just so, as I feel like sometimes Wes Anderson's movies can be, can sort of fall into this, where the stakes, once you've seen a few of them, the stakes are lowered because you know that it's all going to be resolved, that someone's going to say something cute and then they're going to make like a play adaptation of, of, of Apocalypse Now or something, and, then, and, and that, that'll be that, and that's the whole thing. It does... It does dwell a little dangerously close to that sort of very very millennial kind of gen x kind of trap i think in terms of the the, uh, the product another way that this miniseries spoke to me as something having to do with religion is that as i mentioned before the the series is named station 11 which is a graphic novel that kirsten gets from the lead in King Lear, Arthur. Arthur's ex-wife, Miranda, Miranda Carroll, produced this graphic novel, this sci-fi graphic novel, on her own, never published it, but took decades to finish it. It ruined her marriage to Arthur, shows up right before the pandemic hits to hand deliver him a copy or a few copies of it. One copy he gives to Kirsten. One copy is sent to his son, David, or Tyler, as is his real name, who is the one who's leading the undersea youth movement child cult that's abducting children or seducing children to the dark side. So two characters end up with this graphic novel at the, about the exact same time, and they both use it for escapism, they both use it to make sense of their lives. They both use it as a vehicle for processing trauma, successfully or unsuccessfully to a certain degree. And Tyler in particular uses it as the founding mythology for his, his, his cohort, his, his, messianic, his messianic new religious movement, the Undersea. And that's part of the mystery of the show is both of these characters are, that is Kirsten and, and the prophet David, who's trying to take, you know, who's, who's attacking the traveling symphony, who's infiltrating it, who's trying to abduct or seduce people away from it, that they both grew up obsessed with this graphic novel that no one else knows anything about. And David is using it as like an inspiration for like a plan, and again, this plot is so confusing. His his mother and 
his father's best, like sort of a strange best friend, are holed up in this small this small airport um, in Michigan and have sort of created this kind of dystopian society in it that's committed to preserving the past. And he escapes from it, sort of fakes his own death. Again, I should have said spoiler alert. And so he's leading the undersea in sort of this movement against the the airport, which has becomes known as the, the Museum of Civilization. Again, this theme of conserving the past is, 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 is a big part of it. But he uses that, as I keep saying, to recruit and sort of create this magical reality for these young children who are post-pandemic kids and who are dealing with these traumatized grown-ups who lived through the pandemic. And part of the prophet David's message is that, and, ba- and sort of based on some of the ideas in the graphic novel, is that we need to get past the trauma and the bullshit of the generations that raised us. There is no before, is like one of these, these maxims that comes out of the story. There is no before, and we actually need to violently erase the past. There's kind of almost like a cultural revolution kind of vibe to that. But yeah, the idea of a sacred text, the idea of a text that sort of falls from the sky and is being used for politics and being used for, for like existential management, self-management. This to me really shouted out as, 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 as having a lot to do with things that people who study religion are interested in, like how to interpret these texts, what people do with these texts. In one scene in the final episode, one of the young soldiers for the undersea walks into the airport where Kirsten is reunited with the, the traveling symphony, even though they're sort of being held captive by the, the Museum of Civilization. And she sees this young girl coming with these landmines because that's part, like this sort of part of their attack strategy when they're summoned by the prophet David through a burning tower. Again, many details in the plot. And Kirsten ends up just showing her the graphic novel and reading through it with her. And the, the young girl knows the story by heart, almost verbatim, but she's never seen the page. She doesn't even know it's a comic book. And, and Kirsten like sort of takes her through and shows her and they both read the pages aloud together. And there seems to be a, a message there about how texts, whether they're for these sort of high cultural texts like Shakespeare or how for in religion, sacred texts are injected into these new contexts are being made to do this tremendous work to manage our emptiness and our fears and our anxieties and our need for some kind of narrative structure for everything. And so, yeah, that's, that's a big theme in this. Another reason I thought that this series deserved to be discussed for Seven Heads, Ten Horns, obviously devil-oriented, devil is the way in which it faints towards demonic adversaries only to parry away from that. So the prophet David, who's Tyler, a young boy who's estranged from his family and is traumatized in the aftermath of the pandemic, we see him as a very menacing figure at first. He seems like an evil this evil, evil guru, evil hippie type. And then we get his story contextualized. This is true of another character, Clark, who is Tyler slash David's father's friend, who is really insecure about his own limitations in his acting career and really has been really jealous of Tyler's father. 
and he comes across as someone who's who is on the verge of a kind of almost totalitarian reactionary ethic in the way he manages the museum of civilization he seems on the verge of becoming a villain at numerous moments and the show backs down from it the show sort of in the in these moments of of evil looming large you can almost get then we then we get the wes anderson these wes anderson escape hatches like clark is is seeming at his most reactionary and then he sees kirsten and tyler perform a scene from station 11 they improvise a scene together because they both know this this comic book by heart and he's moved by it he's he wants to reject the performance that the traveling symphony is going to give because he thinks it's going to undermine his authority and prompt a youth movement there in the museum of civilization with where, the, where certain survivors have have held up for, for decades and then when he gets a chance to play claudius in the play to resume his acting career he sort of has like this this sort of cute light bulb goes off and he's like oh like okay and i don't know for me those that's what i'm calling the, the wes anderson escape hatches of the plot and they're a way to express a humanism and optimism and an idea that i think is really important in the over the in, since in, i don't know i'll say the past 10 years that's 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 a generalization or a, a sort of a, a rough guess but the idea that we don't that evil is an impoverished concept that what we're talking about is trauma cycles of trauma and harm caused through the traumas and the and the sort of unexamined damage that's been done to the human psyche and so we don't we, we never get super villains we never get evil villains there there's maybe some exceptions in the show there are roving bands but even i think the show would even have us think that even those characters lives could be contextualized to explain why they're doing violence i and i think for me like the the recourse to the cutesy wes anderson escape hatch weakens that theme weakens that argument a little bit because it's a little too just so but here again the sh- as I, I think what's interesting about the show is you you feel the danger you feel the anxiety of being faced with these characters who seem extremely menacing and dangerous and you're like okay we're gonna get a we're gonna get a super villain we're gonna get a satan figure if anyone's a satan figure i guess it's it's a sort of miltonic miltonian satan it would be tyler slash the prophet david who rebels against the museum of civilization who whose trauma forces him or like prompts him to take violent action and to create an underground society of rebellious fallen angel children right but you know like milton satan he's his story is contextualized and he eventually finds some sort of harmonious solution with his mother with whom he's been so furious for for years and so yeah a feint towards demonization and then a parry away. That seems to me to be like one of the major moves that's being made here. And I wonder like how that take on evil and violence and the adversary will hold up. I don't know if it's even even hegemonic at this point. It's being expressed in an HBO show this way. Maybe suggests that it's getting into more of the mainstream. That as we sort of critique carceral society critique the idea that there are good guys and bad guys and the police just need to catch and lock up the bad guys, that we see this as part of a system of violence in white supremacist settler colonialism, that maybe that's what's sort of taking hold in the culture on some level. 
And I wonder how it will age, and I wonder how long it will have its moment, or whether it will it will it will die on the vine. I don't know. It, I'm, I'm, it's it's something that it's a, it's a set of ideas I find compelling and important it, as an answer to demonization and moral panics about the devil and demonized others and all that kind of thing. But yeah, I wonder I wonder what its what its career will be like. I wonder what will it look like in a hundred years. You know, again, it might, and like, that's why this show is so close to the bone. You're like, yeah, hundred years. Like, what will what will things look like in a hundred years? God, like, very different, I'm sure. So yeah, thanks for thanks for indulging me as I as I speak here from the the cultural desk of, of Southern Heads Ten Hordes. Travis and I are meeting tonight to discuss our plan for the first five episodes or so of season three. We're super psyched, but yeah. Using, using the podcast sometimes as a kind of audio notebook for me to process some pieces of culture, literature, that sort of thing through the prism of this investigation of demonology and diabology that we've been doing now for, for over a year. Um, so yeah, thanks for, thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting the pod, reviewing, liking, whatever, whatever you need to do, writing a review, that kind of thing. It really means a lot to us. And my my friend Trevor, who's a who's a Trevor Strunk, who does a big podcast, you know, he he I feel like he has so many connections with people through his podcast, and even he has like told me that like oh it's like such a solipsistic form that you're sort of, you know, I'm sitting here looking at the foot of a bed talking into the void, and it's great to hear from people, and it means a lot to us, and we, we do it because it's fun, and we do it because it's meaningful for us, um, but yeah, it's it's great to hear from people, uh, not to be so super freaking needy. Best of luck as we sort of try to get through the the Omicron, the long Omicron winter, and uh, the days are getting longer, and you'll be hearing from us soon. So thank you for listening. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.